Welcome to Parenting Unchained, the radio show that helps parents find the joy and success God intended in the difficult work of parenting. Every week, we'll bring you sound advice that passes a three-part test. First, it must be biblical, built on the solid foundation of God's Word. Second, it must be practical. Parents must be able to put the advice to work right away. Third, it must produce long-term effect and benefit our children into their adult years. Here's our host, author, and trainer for the National Center for Biblical Parenting, Dr. Jim Dempsey. One of the greatest deceptions that Satan throws at Christians, whether parents or not, is that we need to be silent about our faith. That deception may be couched like this. I don't want to beat people over the head with my Bible. Or it could sound like this. I would rather live out my faith in front of people. They'll know I'm a Christian by my actions. I could list a dozen more excuses many of us make that ultimately result in silence. But Martin Luther King said this, and it's the quote for this week, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. You know, we really um, take a wrong turn in our lives when we're silent about those things that really are most critical, the things that will last. In those two excuses that I gave, there's definitely a grain of truth or of substance. In the first case, No one wants to be pummeled by someone arrogantly spouting Bible verses at us. Jesus himself never blasted out his advice to those who didn't want to hear it. He attracted crowds and then taught the people when they came to him. Jesus went into the synagogue and did most of his teaching there as an invited guest speaker. People could come and listen or stay away. It was their choice. So no one who is beating people over the head with Scripture uh, is following the example of Christ. The the second excuse I listed, that we should just live differently and let our actions speak for us, never speak about our faith, that's equally unjustified when you look at the example of Jesus. He certainly lived very differently. In fact, he never sinned once. That's different living. But he was constantly teaching about and talking about matters of faith, especially with his disciples. He was constantly talking about the Old Testament scriptures and what God expects from his people. If we follow God's example through Christ, we should live differently and be constantly teaching our disciples about God's love and plan for us. And in the context of parenting, as we talk about in our show today, our disciples are our own children, so we have to talk to our kids about our faith. But here's one of the biggest problems for all of us. We don't really understand why we believe the Bible, and thus we can't explain our faith very well. Sure, we can repeat the Bible stories, and we can say that we believe it because God wrote it. That settles it. We've heard that uh, little ditty before. But most Christians can't really explain in, in a reasoned way why we believe the Bible to be true, why it's reliable, why we can trust it, why we can put our whole life Uh, in God's hands. We certainly couldn't defend it against a committed and well-armed atheist. And so very often that uh, lack of uh, surety in our own understanding keeps us silent. When a respected science teacher, who will come along in your child's world someday, will tell your child that the world and everything in it is created through natural processes alone, like evolution, your child is in no position to respectfully disagree because you never taught your child how to defend the idea of creation. By the way, you taught your child to respect his teacher, right, and to value education. And so this same teacher you taught your child to respect is now offering proof in the form of lots of textbooks and other science material to back up her or his claims. Now, we need to teach our children a basis for their faith. 
And we can also teach them it's possible to respect our teachers, yet not swallow everything they say when it goes against what we believe. But that's the problem. We need to know what we believe and be able to defend it. So today I want to prepare you to answer this question. Why do you believe in Jesus? The question might come as, why do you believe in God or why do you believe in the Bible? All these questions are, are tied together, especially for a Christian. Now, today's show began for me with a conversation that came at me when my youngest daughter was about 12 years old. It, it came at me from the back of the minivan as we were traveling home uh, one night from a visit to see my in-laws. And uh, everyone in the family was asleep, wife and the other two daughters. And my youngest one said, Daddy, why do you believe in Jesus? You know, Christianity, all that stuff. Her question hit me like a spiritual missile launched from the mind of a 12-year-old. I think, as I recall, I offered up a quick prayer like Nehemiah did. And here's what I said, more or less. I want to kind of go over it as I, as I wrote down my recollections. This was my, my, uh, my logic with my daughter. I told her, you, daughter, like every other person, have to come to faith on your own. I can't make you believe, and I know that. I can tell you what I believe and why I believe it, and I can show you why it's both logical and, and why it's validated by my own personal experiences. But you have to check these truths out for yourself and make that decision. Uh, number two, I told her, I believe the evidence for a creator is clear. The creation is just too complex, and living beings are too complicated to be explained by evolution. Now, I'm a scientist I, in, in training. Um, that's my doctorate is in uh, child development, which is very much a, a science. But I didn't go uh, into the arguments about fine-tuning with my daughter at that point, fine-tuning of the universe and all of the complexities that show me that there has to be a designer of this world. I didn't know much about it back then, and that was, gosh, that was uh, 15 years ago. Today, I certainly would work to give my children some of that information at their comprehension level because now I know that information. I've really done a lot of uh, research on the fine-tuning of the universe, and I would really recommend that all Christians do that themselves. Number three, I told her, if a creator, and I, I believe there is a creator, if a creator made the world out of nothing— and that's what it means to be a creator. And you can't explain our world without believing that he must have made it out of nothing. If that's true, then there's no other miracle that would be too difficult for that creator. Think about it. Is it hard to, to walk on water if you're the person that created water and created gravity and created everything else? Of course not. Uh, thus, if that's true, then the Bible's miracles, as, as fantastic as they may seem to us, they're possible because a creator must have uh, must be it uh, must be there. Number four, if this creator, this creator that we believe exists, if he made me to be a reasoning person and curious like I am and like you are, or you wouldn't ask me that question, I believe this creator made me want to know about him. He gave me a logical desire to know about my creator. Thus, if that's true, then we should be able to find stories that tell us about uh, our Creator's dealings with us, with, with men down through the ages. So that tells me uh, there have to be accounts that, that explain who God is and uh, who our Creator is and what He's like. Number five, then, of all those stories, the religions of the world that explain creation and explain why we're here, only Christianity explains the world that I see. When, when I look around me, I see things like horrible sin. I have to admit that sin exists. Uh, and if I'm really honest with myself, I see sin in myself. I, and 
I don't tell my daughters all of those sins that I see in myself, but I know that I'm sinful. I could explain a few of those to them, and they've seen a few of them as they've lived with me. Now, at the same time, I know that there's sin, and I know that I see sin in myself, but I also see an amazing earth that spins just the right distance from the sun to make liquid water possible, and it makes an atmosphere of just the right mixture to sustain life. Um, I have oxygen to breathe. So many other things, hundreds of other facts that prove our Creator planned a world for us, and this Creator is good, that He's made a good world for us. But the truth of sin tells me that something went wrong, that uh, my sin has separated me from this holy and good and uh, powerful God. And so I need a way to be reconciled to this God. And of course, this is all setting up and, and leading to my belief in Christianity. The sixth thing I told her is that this way of reconciliation, which has to be there if I'm a sinner and yet God is good and holy, there has to be a way of reconciliation. And Jesus supplies that way of reconciliation. And it's credible to me. Uh, looking back on it, I wouldn't have imagined that God would send himself, his own son, to, to die for us as a way to save us. But now, as I hear that story, I think, of course, of course God had to send a perfect son to be the, the payment for my sin. I can't pay for my sin because I'm a sinner, and no one else can pay for it because everyone around me is a sinner. And because miracles are possible, we've already determined that, I'm willing to read the New Testament accounts about Jesus and consider them credible. So now it, it's not crazy or it's not um, blind faith that leads me to look in the Bible and read about Jesus. It just makes sense that God would send someone to make uh, a way for me to get to know him. And since the writers of the Gospels do not make themselves out to be superheroes, those writings ring true. You know, there's lots of things out there, a lot of stories and myths and legends where the, where the mythical figures are just larger than life. They, they, they never... Um, they never suffer the sorts of things that we do. But uh, those people in the Bible, except for Jesus, all prove to be very much human and fall fallible and uh, very much believable because the Bible's not hiding the accounts of the sins of people like Peter and Paul. They were just regular people. And uh, the only hero in the Bible, it turns out, is Christ himself, God himself. So, again, the Bible seems to me to be believable because of that. And since the followers of Jesus, those who knew him and spent time with him on earth, claimed that he rose from the grave, and then they were willing to die horrible deaths rather than recant when they were pressed to do so, I believe they reported exactly what they saw. That, that gives me a great sense of, of confidence that these early Christians must have really seen what they said they saw. This, this resurrection that is so unbelievable, it's the only reason that you can imagine that these, this group of Jews would change from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday. They would reject the very faith that their parents raised them in, not really reject it, but believe in the the. the the fulfillment of that faith in the life of Christ. Number seven, the New Testament books were written so soon after Jesus' resurrection that I believe they're, a, they're truthful accounts of what happened there. Uh, we have a great confidence in the reality of the written Bible, the word that we have. Uh, there's so many copies of them. There's such great evidence that the Bible is reliable. 
that, first of all, it wasn't a concoction hundreds of years later. These accounts of Jesus' life were written within the first 30 or 40 or 50 years of Christ's life on earth. While there were still plenty of people around to contradict them, to, to squash those beliefs, but they didn't. They were accepted as generally true about Jesus. And, of course, there are lots of other uh, non-biblical accounts like Josephus that tell us about the life of Christ, that he was a real person, that he really lived, that he had a following that believed he worked miracles, uh, and they were spreading like wildfire in the early years of Christianity. The New Testament books were written in Greek, which is a very common language. And there's no controversy today over what those words mean. We're not debating whether the words were changed. They weren't. Uh, so many copies of the first uh, books of the New Testament survive today that anyone can compare and determine if changes had been made. That's one of the uh, knocks on Christianity that I hear from some people. That how could you believe in something that's 2,000 years old? How could those books be uh, believable? Somebody must have changed them. But that's just not true. The truth through scholarship tells us that the very words we have in the New Testament are the same ones that were written in those first 50 or 60 years after Christ lived and died. The New Testament is both reliable and inspired. We can believe that with some confidence. That was number seven. Number eight in this, in this uh, description of why I believe what I believe is that this fact, that if Jesus is God, and if the New Testament is inspired, then whatever Jesus commands, I must do. I have a moral obligation because Jesus is, in fact, God. He proved himself to be the Son of God, the Holy Son of God. Now, I still sin. That's, that's a problem. But I believe that the infinite value of Christ's death on the cross paid for my sin so I can have confidence in this salvation that I profess. Now, there's more to this. Let me go on to, to this because that, that explains my faith, but it doesn't explain all about how I act. So let's, let's go to the next part of this, and that is that Jesus, as in his accounts that are written in the New Testament, written through four different gospels with different takes on it, but all pointing to the very same person of Jesus, very consistent in his message, this Jesus spoke of hell many times. And so even though it's an uncomfortable thought, I believe in hell because Jesus said it's a real thing. Why would he have said in John 3.16 that there's a possibility of perishing and that belief in him would keep us from perishing if there weren't an option or, uh, or the reality of perishing? And that's why hell is a real thing. Jesus said we can avoid it. We can avoid the perishing that comes in hell if we will believe in him. But we need to take that seriously as parents and as Christians, that hell is a possibility, and it's our duty then, and that's number 10. If I believe in hell, we and I need to take my parenting duties seriously. So as I spoke to my daughter that night, I kind of rested my case with that, that this is why we're serious about our faith. This is why we take you to church. This is why we want you to read the Bible, we want you to build your life on the Bible, because it's believable. It's not a fairy tale. Uh, now, I want you to note, as I've gone through those 10 things, uh, how those beliefs build on each other, and they all go back to the reality of a creator. And it's interesting, after I said that, I, again, I told you I said a, a quick prayer and began this uh, little dialogue. I didn't have this written down in advance. It just came to me as I, as I thought about why I believe in God. And I, I really believe that God inspired me to say those things. Now, you might have different <laughs> inspiration than I do. I don't say they're um, on the par with Scripture. 
But I do believe that God gave me these thoughts in sequence so that I could share them with my children. And if you're unclear on this or want to hear more about it, I hope you can buy my book, Parenting Unchained, Overcoming the Ten Deceptions That Shackle Christian Parents, because I wrote about this and laid out this sequence in chapter 13, speaking a little bit more about why we need to uh, tell our kids exactly what we believe. Now, again, you may have a different logic, but you need to have some logic that can stand up to real questions. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 1 that's always meant a lot to me. God says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Now, this tells me that God is a God of reason, not a God of blind faith. He expects us to reason with him, and he has certainly the best logic. So we don't need to be afraid of what God tells us. We have good reason to believe in God. So we need to take the time to establish our reasoning, why we believe. Don't be afraid to question God. He can stand up to your questions. And don't be afraid to be questioned by your kids. You know, you may not have the answer immediately, but I'm confident that those kinds of questions come at us so that we'll have the opportunity to go to God, ask him for his wisdom. You know, there's plenty of things we don't know about God, but he's given us everything we need in Scripture for life and godliness, as the New Testament says, so that we can know his clear purpose and his dealings with mankind, and in particular for parents, so that we can know how to raise our children, how to explain our faith to our kids. God, through the Holy Spirit, equips you for that. You just need to go and ask, and then don't let it go. Spend time on this. Now, I said that the first and the fundamental issue in the defense of our faith is that there is a creator. In times past, most people believed this, but in this particular age of science, it's more and more common that people doubt the the aspect of a creator, that this universe was created. There's strong competition from those who say that the cosmos is all there is and all there ever will be, and, uh, and that there's no need for a creator. Now, our kids need to be able to stand up to that argument. Uh, And it's a critical one because it underpins everything we believe about God, about Christ, about the Bible. Next, we need to establish that for sure, that why we believe that there is a creator. We need to be able to convey that to our children and help them to convey it to others. Next, our kids need to grapple with the concept of sin. Without an understanding that sin messed everything up, our creator God seems mean and cruel to tell that, for instance, when he told the Israelites to kill the entire population of Jericho and to displace those nations that occupied the promised land. That seems um, counter to what a good God would do. But a good God can do that because this was a fallen world, that those people who occupied uh, the promised land were totally fallen. If you go back and look at how long God was patient with them for hundreds of years, he had pronounced judgment on them. They were doing things like sacrificing children in fire, their own living children. Uh, they were doing things that were reprehensible, that were abominable to God, and he had every right to displace them. In fact, God has a right to kill all of us. <laughs> he created each of us, and certainly he has the right to set the date of our death. And so we need to get past that idea that uh, we somehow uh, set the standards for ourselves. God set the standard for what is right and what is moral. The fact of the matter is we've all sinned. And so anything that we get that's of a kind nature is God's mercy being given to us. Our sin 
And here's the bottom line. It requires drastic measures. It required God to send his son to die on a cross to, to expiate our sins. And if our kids don't understand the evil of sin and the reasons uh, sin is so bad, they won't understand why Jesus had to die. If you don't know why Jesus had to die, there's no basis for needing a, a creator. Salvation has no meaning then without the concept of sin. Now, if our kids begin to understand that a creator is necessary to explain our world and they understand that sin is a problem for them, then they'll also be open to a relationship with that creator who promises to take care of our sin for us. They'll be open to the book that contains the accounts of God's dealings with man, the accounts of those miracles. Without the need for a creator, it seems impossible for me to convince someone of the coming judgment and for the need of salvation. So we need to spend some time thinking about why we believe in God, why we believe in the Bible and in Jesus. Again, don't be afraid of doubt and of tough questions. God certainly isn't afraid of your tough questions. Be ready for deep conversations with your children. And frankly, they'll take more than one probably. Pray for that opportunity that you'll get to lay this uh, thinking out for your children at a time when they're ready to hear it. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now that's a key, right? To be gentle and reverent as we explain our faith to others. We don't beat them over the head, make them feel guilty. God does that for us. We don't have to load guilt on people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Having this step-by-step building block script laid out is one thing, and I hope you do take time to do that. It's a good thing, but it's not the end of the discussion. Let me warn you. In fact, it's just the beginning. You finally have a position laid out, but how do you get your child to believe what you believe? First, let's be clear, it's not your job to make your kids believe anything. Belief is internal. We can't make anyone believe what, they're, what they might be opposed to. There are four things that I think you can do uh, because we're going to rely on the Holy Spirit to call our kids to faith. But we can do four things. We can first pray for their salvation. Second, we can structure our lives to give the gospel a place of importance, to, to make the gospel a central tenet of our, of our home that we do sin and that there's a covering for our sin in the person of Jesus. That needs to be central in the discussions we have with our kids and the way we live our lives. Third, and this is why I wrote my book, you need to be aware of Satan's deceptions, those things that got, that Satan wants to use to get you off track. That's why I wrote the book, uh, Parenting Unchained, Overcoming the Ten Deceptions that Shackle Christian Parents. Believe me, Satan wants to get you off track and he has deceptions that he uses on our world today to do that. And then fourth, we need to introduce our children to a community of other people. That's what the church is. People who believe as you do, who live as you do. That adds strength, that adds credibility to the life that you've chosen. Now, in spite of these four things, the salvation of a soul is between God and the persons. That's why praying is so critical. We have to rely on God. These four things are substantial, though. It's, they're not inconsequential, and this radio show is committed to helping you do them. Let's look real quickly again at these four things. Praying for your child. By praying, you're recognizing the true source of faith, God. He's the only one that can give faith. We can't earn it or achieve it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God, not of works. You can't work for it, and your kids can't work for it. And that's so no one may boast. Faith is a gift from God. Number two, you can live your life by God's direction. 
For me, this was the turning point of my faith. I finally decided that if God is God, I owe it to him to obey him. Whom am I to simply ignore the clear commands of the supreme being of the universe? What impudence on my part. I need to read what he says in the Bible and begin to do it. And that was a, a turning point early in my life as a, as a married husband. Now, once I did that, my desire to obey God followed, and my heart began to change. And once I got that area of life back on track, God showed me other areas to change. And now as I read the Bible, new requirements become clear. I find new ways that God wants me to uh, follow him. Number three, we need to avoid the deceptions of the devil, need to know that they exist. And this has been a big part of my growth in my ministry now, understanding how Satan plants wrong ideas and habits into our minds. Here's what I believe we need to do as Christians. First, we need to recognize that Satan is real. And some of us don't believe that, but he is real. <laughs> According to Jesus, he's real. And we need to understand Satan's strategy, one of deception. Uh, and he goes after us as believers. We've got to understand that. Uh, we need to know that Satan is persistent, and so he'll keep coming at us and, and find new ways to deceive us. So we need to always rely on Christ. We need to be um, very humble in doing that. And then finally, fourth, we need to be wise about training our children, introducing them to the world and to other Christians, help them to fit in into the world of believers. Christian parents you need to get training in many of the skills that are necessary as parents. And so that's why we offer seminars at the National Center for Biblical Parenting. I urge you to go to their website, www.biblicalparenting.org, get on their email list. And certainly I'd love to bring the seminar called Cooperation Consequences and Keeping Your Sanity to Your Church. Uh, it'll give you amazing new biblical skills for the tough job of parenting. Ask your pastor to check it out by visiting my website, which is d6culture.com, or contacting me directly at jimd at biblicalparenting.org. Uh, this is Dr. Jim Dempsey with Parenting Unchained. We're glad you're with us today. Come back next time. Thank you for joining us on Parenting Unchained. To learn more about Dr. Dempsey's ministry or to bring his powerful parenting seminars to your church or school, check out his website at d6culture.com. Listen next week at this same time and find new freedom for your parenting on Parenting Unchained.